How do you know when an investigation is over? When you've knocked on every door and called every number. When there's no more evidence to generate. Unless some new information pops up. That's when you know the investigation is over. And that's where we find ourselves at the end of our timeline, which happens to be a few weeks before Ivan's scheduled execution date. The only thing left to do now is weigh the totality of evidence that's been uncovered over the course of this investigation, starting with Ivan's conviction. goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 40, The Closing Arguments. Well, my name is Brad Lawler. Graduated from law school in 1977. I worked for Henry Wade in the DA's office for five years. And then I've been out in private practice since 1982, 2013. Uh, when I went back to work for the Public Defender's Office Capital Murder Division. And since that time, I've been doing exclusively capital murders and the lesser-included murders that come out of those. I wanted an independent legal expert to review Ivan's conviction. And Mr. Lawler, with his near 50 years in practice, certainly fits that bill. The first thing I wanted to determine is if the defense was entitled to Detective Wynn's binders the 400-plus pages of evidence that he brought on to the witness stand, should those binders have been handed over to the defense? Obviously, if there's exculpatory material in it, then they should have received that from the state. Right. And, there, I mean, it's interesting because in the out of the 400 pages, there's probably only about 25 to 50 of those pages. Uh, well, maybe a little more because, you know, like, Amy's, Amy's statements were in there, and without yes. reviewing Amy's statements, um, yeah. how could they properly question, you know, question Amy? How do they know well, that's what changed from her statements to what she's testifying to at trial? I've based most of my investigation on these binders of evidence. Now, it's true that not every page out of the 400 is an important piece of evidence. Some pages are just like James, Amy, or Ivan's vehicle and address history. Some pages are redundant, but these 400-plus pages are all of Dallas PD's investigation. You have every witness statement, every evidence log, every report. This is everything. To name just a few of the most compelling pieces, you've got the anonymous caller report that indicated Chris Head and James had a, quote, huge falling out. You've got the report listing the manufacturing company that Amy Head worked, which links her back to the bloody jeans. You've got the report that Frank Perez was overheard saying, quote, they weren't killed last night, they were killed today. You've got reports about James' drug dealing. 
and Anthony's door getting kicked in just a few weeks before the murders. And you've got one piece of evidence that is yet to be discussed in this podcast. It was a witness statement taken by Detective Wynn and given by Tawny. On November 9th, one day after Ivan's arrest, and the same day the police went over to Tawny's to take the gun into evidence, in that statement, Tawny said, quote, At DFW Airport, Amy gave me some money. She told me to try to get Ivan out of jail, unquote. Now, if Amy was scared to death of Ivan, why would she want him out of jail? That is a critical statement and calls into question the statements Amy started giving the following day in Arkansas. Now, when I asked Tawny about that statement, she told me she didn't remember that, but she said those few days she was kind of in shock and everything was a blur. So the fact remains, the day after it would have happened, that's what she told Detective Wynn, that Amy told her to try to get Ivan out of jail. And all of this aforementioned evidence wasn't handed over to the defense. And in those 400 pages, there isn't a smoking gun that exculpates yeah. Ivan completely. If you okay. look at the basically the 25 to 50 pages of documents within the 400, it's a, it's yeah. a much different case. And and if uh, and if attorneys really wanted to uh, question the state's case, there's certainly information that could have been utilized to the benefit of Ivan. You know, without seeing the actual 400 pages and what those 25 to 50 pages were that could have been used by the defense to cross-examine Amy Batcher with, we have this issue of going to trial, having to go to trial, without knowing what the state has, without knowing what the police department has. And that has been corrected now since 2014 with the passage of the Michael Morton Act, where they're required to give you uh, everything that they have received from the police department. That was not in effect, obviously, in 2001, when this case was tried. Was there improper coaching of a witness by the police during the investigation, in your opinion? Well, there could have been. Now, see, the laws in Texas have changed so much since this case was tried in 2001, uh, now there would be a videotape of the interview of Ms. Batcher by the police, and the jury can make their own determination of it. There could have been coaching. I can't definitively say there was or was not. Right. And so when you see things pop up, I guess, detailed in her statement, the main one being the Rolex, for instance. Um, yes, you know, she that's said, very she disturbing. Right. So, I mean, what do you make of that? Just as as an independent outsider looking at that, how the, yeah. the Rolex came into her statements and now knowing that obviously uh, Ivan did not steal the Rolex, wh yeah. what do you make of all that? Well, she claimed that he did steal it. He said he stole it and, in fact, showed it to her and threw it out the car window while they were driving down the freeway. <clears throat> and all that turns out not to have been true because the watch was found 18 years later after the trial and that's very disturbing because that shows that she might have been lying about more than just that one item and it leads me to wonder why 
she's lying at all about that piece of evidence, about any piece of evidence. That is that is disturbing. Well, and actually what's interesting about that Rolex and that whole incident was that apparently the Rolex was handed back to the police. Um, and I believe it was handed back to the uh, lead homicide detective, who in turn huh. handed it back to the family. So one side of the okay. family basically found, found the Rolex in the house. They they turned it over to the police. The police turned it over to the other side of the family, James's family. Okay. But there was no report made. But obviously if the, the uh, homicide detective handed that Rolex back over, he yep. knew that the Rolex had been found. But there was just no report made. So when, Do we know well, when that was done? When When was the Rolex found, located? We don't have an exact date based on witness information and what was told to the DA investigator who was trying to kind of put some of this back together was apparently a couple of weeks after the murders. But, so before uh, one the time, trial. It, it, oh, before the trial, yes sir. Yeah, oh well okay, well, that changes things. One years after the trial that it was discovered, it was before the trial and the Police certainly should not have let that go unchallenged um, without telling the defense about that, without telling the state about it. Detective Wayne knew, he clearly knew before my pretrial hearing on the motion to suppress, Geller asked him eight times about that Rolex. Eight times. And he rolled with it as if it was completely stolen to mirror the fraudulent report he put together on me, to mirror the fraudulent information that they had Amy put into her statements in the case. Then you have what's called a Brady violation, which is the state knowingly hiding exculpatory evidence or evidence which hurts their case. That's called a Brady violation. That's a problem. If it was found before the trial and they still let her testify that this was the watch that he claimed was stolen, and she saw him throw it out the window of the car. That's an issue. How many brain violations does it take to legally do something at, at an appeal process? There's no set number of Brady violations. One can do it, and that would seem to be a major one. The question is whether the police told the DAs that. The DA should have told that to the defense. So if that did not happen, then we have an issue. What if the state didn't know because the police never told them? Is that well, then issue? we have an issue with the police investigation, which would entitle Ivan to a new trial, if you ask me. Um, I think he gets a new trial after, after all these things are taken into consideration. Maybe Ivan does deserve a new trial but that doesn't mean the state of Texas will be granting him one. And that doesn't mean the jury actually got the verdict wrong. You will soon decide. Let's go through the closing arguments for the prosecution, which lays out the state's case and all of their evidence, at least as it was presented in 2001. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've listened to a lot of evidence. But all the evidence shows beyond a reasonable doubt that this defendant is guilty of capital murder. We'll talk about the issues that are not contested. It's not contested that the date of this offense, 
We know that it happened on or about November 3rd of 2000. We know it happened sometime after 11.30 p.m. November 3rd and sometime prior to 12.18 a.m. on November 4th of 2000. We know the cause of death was gunshot wounds. Not contested. Both James and Amy were shot to death. So the first issue that we get to is how do we know this defendant killed James Mosqueda and Amy Kitchen? Well, first of all, you have his fingerprints on the murder weapon. His fingerprints are on the magazine of the gun, which we know to be the murder weapon. Every bullet retrieved from the bodies, the two from James Mosqueda, four from Amy Kitchen, the projectile found at the crime scene and the bullet taken out of the wall at the defendant's apartment, every single one of those came out of that gun, the murder weapon. We know that he went out. He was ready to go party, and he was ready to go kick it at seven. His neighbor sees him changing out CDs in the Corvette. And of course, Amy Betcher tells you, that's how they got down to Club 7. That's how they were driving around. And of course, the Corvette is found at the defendant's apartment. That's where he left it a couple of yards away from his front door. He was wearing James Mosqueda's bracelet, the bracelet introduced into evidence. The one that his sister said, yes, that's James' bracelet. Amy said he put that bracelet on when he came home. That's the bracelet that Dick Kramer found in Arkansas where this defendant had been spending the night. He's wearing James' jewelry. You have Amy Betcher's testimony. She told you the defendant calls the victims and says, I need to come over to talk. He then leaves about 11.30, saying I'm going over there to kill James and Amy. He comes back. He's covered in blood. He's driving Amy Kitchen's car. He has James and Amy's IDs. He has their keys. He then takes her over there and says, I'm going to show you what happens when you mess with me. He shows her the bodies, and while he's in there, while he's looking for more money or drugs, whatever he's looking for, he's getting mad, saying, I ought to shoot them again because I can't find it. She told you he did it. You've got the jeans and the socks found in the defendant's garbage in the kitchen. Both those have the victim's blood on it. Amy Betcher told you she put those jeans and those socks in the trash can. Those were the jeans and the socks he was wearing when he came home from the murder. It's got James Mosqueda's and Amy Kitchen's blood on it. You've got the gun found at Tawny's house. That gun had James Mosqueda's blood on it. We know that's the murder weapon. Same gun the defendant had... He had it before the murder. He had it after the murder. You've got the defendant lying. He's telling this pizza man story that some pizza man came and he shot a hole in the wall. And that's the pizza man that's after James. Well, you know that's a lie. You know it's a lie because Amy Betcher told you it was a lie. She said no, it was the defendant. 
It was Ivan Cantu that shot at me. Ballistics tell you that's right because the bullet that was taken out of the wall matches that gun. Even Carlos said, when he started talking about that pizza guy story, I knew he was lying. It's nothing but a bunch of lies. Why do you have to lie if you don't have anything to cover up? He's obviously lying because he's guilty. I mean, he even told Carlos James had it coming. He wanted James dead. There's no doubt that it was this defendant, Ivan Cantu, that killed James Mosqueda and Amy Kitchen. How do we know he intentionally caused the death? First of all, you've got the phone call. If he just wanted to take their property, if he just wanted to steal the drugs and steal the money, the first phone call at 9.59, they weren't home, and we know that they were at dinner still with Amy's dad. He could have just gone over there and did that, but he didn't. He waited until they got home. He waited when he called back. At 11.13, they were home. That's when he decides to go over there. You've got Jeff Betcher's testimony, and Jeff told you that he's been talking about this a week or two before the murder. Hey, Jeff, there's dope over there. There's money over there. You help me clean up, you get some. I'm going to kill my cousin James. He planned it. He knew he was going to do it. And when he left, he told Amy Betcher, I'm going over there to kill them. We know that he hit or kicked one of the victims. He wanted to torture them before he killed them. And I think it's a reasonable inference from the evidence that it was Amy Kitchen that he hit or kicked before he finally killed her. I think we can assume that, first of all, he told Amy Betcher. Amy told me what I wanted to know, indicating he was trying to get some information out of her. Secondly, Carlos told you this defendant had absolutely no respect for women. So it would be more like him to torture the woman. She was being kicked in the head. And it's also a reasonable inference because the defendant has Amy Kitchen's blood on his sock. And if you look at the sock, it's got blonde hair on it, consistent with Amy Kitchen's hair. And we know he had a motive to kill them. He was jealous of Amy Kitchen. He was jealous of James Mosqueda. He called Amy an arm piece and jealous she was getting a free ride from James. He was jealous of James having a nice car and a nice home. He wanted what they had, and we know he resented James because his own mother gave James a bunch of business in the real estate business. Sylvia can too. You heard Carlos. The amount of business she was giving to James Mosqueda. When her own son is in the same business, but she didn't want her son to have the business, Ivan can too. She trusted James, and he resented him for getting that business. Carlos told you they had numerous conversations about that. And then you have absolutely no remorse on the part of the defendant. Carlos told you that. 
Never once did he have any remorse for James. James had it coming. He wasn't sad. He didn't care. How do we know it was in the course of committing robbery? He could have gone over there when they weren't home, but he didn't. He waited until they got home, and then he went over there with a loaded gun. And he shot them, and he killed them to get the Corvette. We know he took the Mercedes. We know all the money in their wallets was gone. We know they had a substantial amount of money in their wallets that night. Took the keys to the car and the house, took jewelry, took his necklace, took his watch, took his bracelets. He was still wearing the bracelet in Arkansas and the engagement ring that he took off Amy Kitchen's finger and put on his own girlfriend's finger. And we know he did it in the course of intentionally killing Amy Kitchen. We know they were killed during the same criminal transaction. You saw Amy Betcher. She was cooperative. From the moment she felt safe at her parents' house, they called the police, let them know where she was. Any police officer that came to take a statement, she gave them a statement, and a lengthy one. She was willing to come testify without any kind of deal, just to say here is what happened. She's telling you the truth. She's not an accomplice. And all the evidence shows beyond a reasonable doubt that on or about November 4th of 2000, this defendant intentionally killed James Mosqueda and Amy Kitchen, and he did it in the course of robbing them. And I ask that you go back there and find him guilty. And that brings us to the defense's closing argument. But before we go there, you need to hear this proceeding that took place in the courtroom prior to the closing arguments. At this time, the defense would request that the state elect as to which theory of capital murder it will proceed on, either murder in the course of committing robbery or murder of two people. All right, what says the state? No, thank you. All right, ma'am. Uh, they declined to make the election, apparently. Yes, Your Honor. I'd ask the court to order the state to make an election at this time. We'd rather you not. I will not do that. Like much of Ivan's trial proceedings, it certainly sounds like the state was running the show. In previous episodes, I misspoke and said that Ivan was convicted of capital murder because of the murder and the robbery. It wasn't until going back over the portion of this transcript for this final episode that I realized that was only half correct. The court left it open for both theories. It was either capital murder because of the single murder, namely James, and the robbery of James Rolex watch, Amy's platinum engagement ring, and James Corvette, per the Dallas PD prosecution report, or setting aside any robbery, the state also theorized that it was capital murder because of the murder of two people. So the defense had to argue against both theories, and this is a portion of how Ivan's attorney, Matt Geller, chose to do so. I stood up and I said, Ivan Cantu is not guilty of capital murder. I didn't say he was innocent. I said he's not guilty of capital murder. And that would be the crux of Geller's argument. Essentially saying Ivan was guilty of murder, but not guilty of capital murder. As to why Geller argued that Ivan wasn't guilty of capital murder, he said, Why is Mr. Cantu not guilty of capital murder? As the charge tells you, 
there's two theories the state has coming at you. Murder in the course of attempting to commit or committing robbery. Now, if I'm going to rob somebody, kill them to rob somebody, I'm not going to call them and tell them I'm on the way. You don't call somebody and announce you're coming over. Whatever problems they were having, whatever is going on, it wasn't to rob. I mean, think about it. What are you going to rob? Everybody knows what everybody has, apparently. So that's not capital murder under robbery. Everybody knows what everybody has, apparently? What does that even mean? These are the closing arguments of a capital murder case. And Geller's argument isn't coherent. Other than arguing Ivan's not going to call anybody before going over to rob them, Geller never clearly explained why murder in the course of attempted robbery did not occur. The state listed all of those items in their closing argument that allegedly were taken, and Ivan's defense never attempted to dispute any of that, so they could not successfully shoot down the robbery theory. Now on to... And the other alternative theory that the state has is the intentional murder of two people. I don't know. You may have the intentional murder of one person. I don't know. There's nothing I can tell you that the murder of Amy Kitchen was not intentional. I'm being honest with you. I don't have anything. Was there an intentional killing of James Mosqueda? I'd submit to you there's a self-defense issue there. The state told you their evidence. He had a swollen face from a baseball bat. So, in an attempt to try to shoot down the second theory, Geller tried to argue that the murders were somehow in self-defense. We know there's a confrontation. We know that for a fact. Do we? The state sponsored that evidence. Swollen face hit with a baseball bat. There was no intentional killing I'd submit to you. Was it self-defense? Did he overreact to the use? Now, when we talk about deadly force, if you get hit in the head with a baseball bat, that's deadly force. If Geller was going down this route, you would think he would like to have some evidence to corroborate his theory of self-defense. There was no baseball bat found at the crime scene and taken into evidence. And here Geller is telling the jury Ivan killed them. It's just a matter of why. Was it an overreaction? I don't know. The state didn't bring you any evidence of that, but they do tell you there was a confrontation. And if there's a killing as a result of that, I would submit to you it's not an intentional killing. So... I would submit to you that this is not capital murder. As I stood up and told you a long time ago, he's not guilty of capital murder. He's not innocent, but he's not guilty of capital murder. And so, I'd ask you to find him not guilty of capital murder. Thank you, Your Honor. Ivan got condemned from both sides. You've got the prosecution telling the jury that Ivan's guilty. And then you've got Ivan's own defense telling the jury... He's not innocent. That just doesn't seem right. And in fact, if Ivan's trial had happened after 2018, the conviction could have been overturned because of Geller's closing argument alone. Because in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled in McCoy versus Louisiana that the Sixth Amendment guarantees a defendant the right to decide that the objective of his defense is to maintain innocence at all costs even when counsel believes that admitting guilt offers the defendant the best chance to avoid the death penalty. The McCoy ruling is now in place, but it's still unknown if this 2018 ruling could retroactively affect Ivan's 2001 conviction. Geller may have believed that admitting guilt offered Ivan the best chance to avoid the death penalty, but considering he couldn't make a strong argument against either of the prosecution's theories that made it capital murder, it seems like the death penalty 
was inevitable for Ivan. Going back through Geller's lackluster performance and his closing argument, he actually helped solve one of the more curious elements in this case, the mystery of the latex gloves in the trash can. In Amy's first statement, after Ivan came back bloody from James' house, she said, He also had doctor's gloves on. In her second statement, she said, He was wearing James's shirt and shoes. He was also wearing rubber-type gloves. In her third statement, When Ivan came in, he was covered in blood and he was wearing surgical gloves. And in her fourth statement, she said, There was blood on his jeans and he was wearing latex gloves. He put the jeans, socks, and gloves in the kitchen trash can. And yet, when asked on the witness stand, There is also some latex gloves in that picture. Is that right? Yes. Have you seen those latex gloves before they went in the trash can? No. Who put the latex gloves in the trash can? Do you know? No, I don't. When investigator Frankham asked her in 2012, during trial, do you remember that you testified that uh, inside the trash can where the, the, the pants and all that, there was also a pair of uh, latex gloves? Do you remember that? I remember the pants. Yeah. You don't remember the latex gloves? Nope. Nope. And when I asked her in 2019... There was a, a latex glove in the trash can. Do you recall ever seeing that before? Mm, I don't recall it. I don't recall that. Do you recall, did Ivan come in wearing gloves? I don't recall that either. I have wondered since the very first episode why she never remembered Ivan coming back wearing the latex doctor's gloves after she gave her statements to the police when you would think that would be one detail that would be seared into your memory. That was hard to comprehend. And even more baffling was why they weren't taken into evidence. Assuming he was wearing them when he pulled the trigger, would those latex gloves have blood spatter on them? Yes. So you definitely could look at those gloves. You could turn them inside out and get the skin cells from inside the gloves to see who wore the gloves. And GSR, when you pull on the trigger of a 380 by times, you'd have GSR all over the gloves. And you'll remember in episode 13, when I first showed Eichenberg the pictures of the kitchen trash can, she said, Okay, so the whole Dixie Cup thing... The gloves are visible in the blue Dixie Cup. You can see the picture on our social media and website. To me, it's just obvious that cup was thrown in there after they put that evidence, because the heaviness of the evidence made that bag come off the, the trash can. Eichenberg astutely observed, it looked like there was a second and separate transaction. The jeans and socks were put into the trash can, and at some point later... The blue Dixie cup holding the latex gloves was put into the trash can. And as you'll soon hear, she was correct. This was also a portion from Geller's closing argument. One very significant thing. When Ms. Falco had Ms. Betcher on the witness stand, she made it absolutely clear Ivan didn't put the latex glove in the garbage can. When you look at those pictures, something is very odd. Those jeans look like they've been folded. And you look close... There's that latex glove. Geller picked up on the discrepancy in Amy's testimony that she didn't know who put the latex gloves in the trash can and she didn't know anything about Ivan wearing them. But Geller didn't realize why that was so significant because Amy's statements were withheld from the defense 
Geller was coming at the latex gloves from an illegal search and seizure angle. That apartment was searched. I don't know if it was Officer Younger or Eichenberg, his partner. I don't know which, they all have them. They all carry them in their cars. Somebody screwed up and dropped a latex glove in that garbage because their own witness said it wasn't Ivan. Well, I suppose in this day and age, when an officer is picking through garbage or looking at clothes, they're going to have latex gloves on. I mean, that just makes sense. That's why the whole illegal search and seizure is an issue. Geller was under the assumption that during the wellness check with Officer Younger and Eichenberg, one of them was digging around in the trash can and found the jeans and socks and accidentally left their latex gloves in the trash can. But Younger and Eichenberg have said they didn't mess with that trash can. So I looked at the search warrant narrative from three days after the wellness check and the latex gloves weren't listed as being seen in the trash can. It's as if they weren't there, but they were there. And at that point, it dawned on me what might have happened. I went back to Detective Witsit's testimony. You'll remember he was the detective with Detective Wynn in the apartment executing the search warrant on November 7th. He was the one that took pictures of the trash can. This is from Witsit's trial testimony. And it is somewhat convoluted, which is why I didn't pick up on it on my first review of the transcript. Okay, in this photograph here, is that one... What are these white material things here? That's actually both socks side by side that were recovered and submitted as state's evidence. Okay, up here that appears to be kind of like a rubber glove like you had on earlier? Yes, sir. Is that what that is? A rubber glove? Yes, sir. Okay, that plastic or rubber, I'm sure it's some kind of rubber, synthetic rubber. Was that removed and processed? No, sir. Okay, did you find it? Was this trash gone through all the way through to the bottom? We didn't pull it all out from the can. But when I put on the gloves to retrieve the upper items, we of course pulled from the bottom up. Kind of circulated it in the can. Was there any? Apparently there was nothing on that rubber glove to pique your interest as far as trace evidence goes, correct? No, sir. How about the cup? Was the cup collected and processed? For prints? No, sir. Geller never asked him. Detective Witsit. Why were those latex gloves not collected and processed? But I think they both knew why, and it was right there in black and white all along. When I put on the gloves, I put on the gloves. Those were Detective Witsit's gloves in the trash can. That's why they weren't collected. That's why they weren't processed. And why Amy didn't recognize them at trial. You'll remember from episode 35, the episode on the forensics, I said I had recently come across additional photos of the crime scene, and in one of those pictures it showed the entrance to the master bathroom, where the puddle of blood was supposed to be. Well, you can see the exact same kind of latex glove laying on the floor after the crime scene had been worked. So after Witsit worked Ivan's apartment and searched the trash bag and the trash can wearing the gloves, he maneuvered the jeans and socks so they would be visible on top of the trash. Then he took off his gloves and put them in the blue plastic cup. And then, in what seems to be kind of a bonehead move, he took a picture of the bloody jeans and sock evidence beside his own gloves. To me, it's just obvious that cup was thrown in there after they put that evidence because the heaviness of the evidence made that bag come off the, the trash can. Yeah, why is there no lid? I mean, that just looks like somebody's being set up. 
and actually this discovery is both good and bad for Ivan's case. Going back to my interview with Eisenberg... You know, we looked through the whole apartment. There's no way. I mean, maybe after the detectives went there, but when I was there, I mean, that was the same day. Her information loses its exculpatory value because that picture and evidence of the kitchen trash can was clearly taken after Witsit positioned the jeans and socks, so he could have removed the lid. You see, also in a photo of the kitchen, you can see the trash can lid has been placed on the counter, so there was a lid. That whole line of questioning with Eisenberg was based on... Just so I'm clear on how things are done with the department, so the, the pictures that I sent of the kitchen, that is saying that nothing was moved when they entered, right? That, that is what the kitchen looked like. Uh-huh. That's protocol. It's protocol to take pictures of evidence as you found it. But that's not what happened in this case. And that's why... If you look at that stuff, it's just like it screams somebody else came in there and did it. That's why it looks so odd, like it was planted. Because Witsit neatly placed the jeans, socks, and gloves in a cup on top of the trash. So now it's looking more plausible that Ivan or Amy could have left the jeans and socks in the trash can. Maybe there was other trash on top of them. So right before they left, the jeans weren't visible, and the lid was on the trash can during the wellness check. Now, it's still possible that someone came in after the wellness check, and they put the jeans and socks in the trash can to frame Ivan. But it was Detective Witsit's gaffe that made it look like the jeans, socks, and gloves had been planted. That's what makes this new scenario bad for Ivan. But here's what makes it good. As you heard in all four of Amy's statements, she said he came back wearing those gloves. Clearly he did not. And what's interesting is that this also means Dallas PD was sharing pictures with Arkansas police. Those gloves only existed in pictures. They were never typed up in any report. So either the police in Arkansas showed Amy the pictures, or they were making sure her statement matched those pictures. And Amy brought up these gloves in her very first statement. So from Jump Street, the police were feeding her details. How can we ever really know what part of Amy's statement and testimony were actually coming from Amy, and what parts were coming from the cops? We've established that Amy's statements were manufactured. We've established that Ivan didn't get a fair trial. But what we won't know for a few more days is, will it be enough for Texas to stop Ivan's execution? However, if that were to happen, Ivan gets a stay and somehow was granted a new trial. Given what's been learned over the past 20 plus years, would Ivan be found guilty or not guilty? Well, for this speculative upcoming trial, let's presume Ivan's trial counsel would be effective. So, the new closing arguments could go something like this. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the state's case, everything you have heard is based on Amy Betcher's testimony and the corresponding evidence that supposedly connects Ivan to the crime. Our position is very simple. The evidence found in the Pear Ridge apartment was planted. 
The gun was planted in Tawny's apartment, and Amy Betcher is a pawn. A pawn used by the actual perpetrators who set Ivan up. And a pawn used by the police to make everything fit. Ivan Cantu did not kill his cousin James Mosqueda or Amy Kitchen, and Ivan Cantu did not rob them. Who kills two people, steals their Corvette, parks it right in front of their own apartment, and then leaves town for three days? You'd have to be the dumbest criminal in the world, and Ivan Cantu is not the dumbest criminal in the world. There was no reason for Ivan to kill his own cousin. The state will try to convince you that he was jealous of James, jealous of James's nice house and nice Corvette. Where's the evidence of this? Nowhere. One year prior to the murders, Ivan had his own brand new Corvette. He actually had two. He had a house with a pool. He made $131,000 that year at age 26. Ivan had everything James had and then some. So why would he be jealous of his cousin? Sure, life hit the skid soon after that and he went through a divorce. But who hasn't had ups and downs? Ivan was industrious. He knew he could get back on top. He was working two jobs trying to get back on top. If the big plan was to rob James and steal all his money, why was Ivan busting his butt waiting tables at night trying to get ahead? Ask yourself that. Did he kill his cousin to take Amy's ring so that his own girlfriend could show it off to everyone and their mother for the next few days? Did he kill his cousin to take that fancy Rolex and, whoops, guess it was never stolen in the first place? Which brings us to Amy Betcher. Ladies and gentlemen, we know she lied in every single one of her statements to police, and she lied on the witness stand. 50% of the state's case is based on Amy Betcher, and she sat on the witness stand and told countless lies. She lied about Ivan coming back from James's and Amy Kitchen's house wearing latex gloves. Well, if she was so quick to lie about Ivan wearing the latex gloves, why should we believe her when she testified Ivan was wearing the bloody jeans and socks? We know Ivan wasn't wearing the bloody jeans and socks because the DNA lab couldn't conclusively find Ivan's DNA on those jeans or socks. These DNA tests prove he wasn't wearing them. Amy lied about Ivan tossing boots away. Let's recap all of this supposed tossing of evidence. According to Amy, Ivan threw away the jeans and socks in his trash can. Then Ivan threw more bloody clothes away in a dumpster going to Club 7. He threw away the boots in a dumpster in Arkansas, and then he threw away James's and Amy's IDs, James's wallet, and necklace in a dumpster at Tawny's apartment complex. Now, that's a lot of dumpsters. How do we know that any of that actually happened? We don't. It's only based on Amy's testimony. But the biggest lie Amy told was about being scared to death of Ivan. You've heard witness after witness tell you that Amy didn't act scared one bit. But let's say Amy was scared to death of Ivan. She was just too scared to try to get away or say anything to anybody. Think about this. How would Ivan be so certain of that? This was a girl who met three random guys in a bar in Minnesota, and the next day she hops on a plane with them and comes to Dallas. That's how she ended up in Dallas. Sounds to me like she was kind of impulsive. How did Ivan know that Amy wouldn't tell a single person at any of the house parties they went to that Friday night? Now, this is the most ridiculous hostage situation I've ever heard of. At gunpoint, he was taking her to all these parties? At gunpoint, he was taking her to meet her parents for the weekend? 
It was Amy's plan, which just so happened got Ivan out of town and their apartment unoccupied for three days. A lot of time for evidence to be planted. Ivan was in control, and he wanted to spend three days on his best behavior hanging out with Amy's parents and her stepdad was a former cop. Amy went off and spent the afternoon shopping with her mom. If she was a hostage, why wouldn't she tell her mom? Ivan left Amy alone at Tawny's apartment while he went back to the Pear Ridge apartment. How could Ivan be so sure she wouldn't say anything to Tawny? At IHOP, Amy used Ivan's cell phone outside while Ivan stayed inside with his mom and his Aunt Penny. How could Ivan be so sure she wasn't calling the police right then? There were four cops a few booths over at IHOP. How could Ivan be so sure she wouldn't just walk right up to them? Ivan continued to let her out of his sight, gave her countless opportunities to get help or get away, and gave her his cell phone to tell anything to anyone. Why? Because Ivan knew she wasn't scared. She wasn't trying to get away, and she wasn't a hostage. Amy Betcher never saw any dead bodies. How do we know that? Because two forensic pathologists have told you that Amy Kitchen wasn't dead at 2 a.m. She was killed after 6 a.m. If Amy Betcher had first-hand knowledge about the murders, why would she have to lie so much? There were three people at Tawny's apartment, and two of those people, Tawny and Ivan, have said for the past 20-plus years that Amy put the gun under the couch cushion. Does it make sense for Ivan to have left the most damning piece of evidence in a place that most certainly would be found? After all those dumpster pit stops? Or does it make more sense for someone trying to frame Ivan to leave the most damning piece of evidence in a place that would most certainly be found? Amy told Tawny before she got on the airplane, Look around your apartment. Ivan might have left something. Amy was in Tawny's apartment for six hours by herself. Amy left it there, folks. The state's case is two things. Amy Betcher's testimony and the corresponding evidence that supposedly connects Ivan to the crime. Well, we've established that Amy lied over and over and over again, and there was ample opportunity for the evidence to be planted at the Pear Ridge apartment and at Tawny's apartment. So the state's case doesn't hold water. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a capital murder case. This is a matter of life and death. And remember, the prosecution bears the burden of proving that Ivan is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecution must convince you that there is no other reasonable explanation that can come from the evidence you've heard. Are you convinced that Amy Betcher's testimony is accurate? Are you convinced that Ivan told Amy Betcher he was going to kill James and Amy Kitchen and then took her back over to the crime scene to see their dead bodies? Are you convinced that Ivan was wearing those jeans and socks found in the trash can? Are you convinced Ivan committed a robbery? Are you convinced Ivan stole Amy Kitchen's platinum engagement ring? Are you convinced Ivan stole James's Corvette? What about James's Rolex? Convinced about that? Are you convinced beyond a reasonable doubt in the state's case? How could you be? So, when you're back there in the deliberation room, there's only one way to vote. Not guilty. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Because the prosecution has the burden of proof, they get the final word. Ladies and gentlemen, what you just heard from the defense was a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas. Carlos would have been behind this. 
Anthony could have had a key. Amy should have been more scared. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. That's what the defense is going on. Because unfortunately for them, that's all they have to go on. But the state of Texas presents you with facts. Facts like the bullet in the wall at the Parridge apartment matches the murder weapon, and the murder weapon has Ivan Cantu's thumbprint on the magazine. See? Bullet, murder weapon, thumbprint. That's called evidence. No woulda, coulda, shouldas. The defense tries to tell you Ivan Cantu would have had to have been the dumbest criminal in the world to leave evidence everywhere. No, Ivan Cantu wouldn't have to be the dumbest criminal in the world to have done that. Ivan Cantu would just have to have been on drugs to do that. And do you know what a fact is also? Ivan Cantu was on drugs during the weekend in question. Ivan was on a lot of drugs that weekend. Ivan Cantu was on coke, ecstasy, and meth, and maybe, or maybe not, mushrooms. But even Ivan will tell you, he was on coke, ecstasy, and meth. He was snorting coke, he was swallowing ecstasy, and he was smoking meth. You think you might make a few mistakes after ingesting all those drugs. Who knows what that combination of drugs would do to somebody. But I can tell you this, you're not going to be too sharp after all those drugs. You're not going to be making good decisions after all those drugs. And you're certainly not going to be acting logically or rationally after all those drugs. Or maybe Carlos masterminded this whole thing. You want to talk about ridiculous? Now, that's ridiculous. No, Ivan was on so many drugs, he wasn't thinking straight. That's what happened. There is zero evidence Carlos or Anthony or anybody else had anything to do with anything. Zero evidence, ladies and gentlemen. It's all coulda, shoulda, wouldas. Zero evidence. And when we take a look at what has transpired since Ivan Cantu's conviction, you will see that for the past 22 years, Ivan has manipulated his mother. Ivan manipulated his wife. He's manipulated her out of all their time, energy, and money. Same for his mother. He's had them running in circles trying to track down this or uncover that. But there was never anything real to track down. There was never anything real to uncover, because it was Ivan the whole time. Now that is a sick individual. The same kind of sick individual that controlled Amy Betcher. If he's been controlling and manipulating people from behind bars all these years, then he certainly could have controlled and manipulated Amy Betcher for a few days when he was waving a gun around at her the whole time. He thought he could get away with it. He thought he was smarter than everyone else and could talk his way out of anything. He thought he could talk his way out of it with the police. He thought he could make up these crazy stories like the pizza man and everybody would fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And he is still doing it. He's still the same after 22 years of being in prison. He hasn't changed. He wanted his own podcast. He wanted to put his family through this all over again. 
What else has been uncovered since the trial? Fact. Ivan confessed to his own attorney. Fact. Ivan told him he did it. Matt Geller stated that in a signed affidavit. And now we know why Ivan committed the murders. Ivan told Matt Geller that James ripped him off on a drug deal. Ivan supplied James with two and a half kilos of cocaine, and James sold it for several thousands of dollars. And James refused to give Ivan his cut. And the murders were motivated by revenge. It's all in black and white in Matt Geller's affidavit. There was no pizza man. Nobody else had anything to do with it. It was a drug deal gone bad between two cousins, ladies and gentlemen. That is what Ivan Cantu told Matt Geller. Attorney Matt Geller didn't just make that up out of whole cloth. That came out of Ivan Cantu's mouth. Ivan confessed, and then he told Matt Geller that his job was to get him home, period. But that confession tied Ivan's trial counsel's hands behind their back. He did it to himself. And then once Ivan realized how that came back to bite him, he turned to 180 because he was and is going to say anything to save himself. He cares about his life, but he didn't care one bit for the life of his own cousin and the love of his cousin's life, Amy Kitchen. His attorney was lying. Amy Betcher was lying. Everybody was lying, but him. Everybody was always out to get him. Why? Detective Wynn was out to get him. Carlos and Anthony were out to get him. Why is Ivan so important that he thinks everyone is out to get him? He's not, and they aren't. Fact, the two forensic pathologists that said Amy Kitchen was more likely killed sometime around 6 a.m. were only going off of a medical examiner's report, a piece of paper. Fact, a piece of paper that was written by a field agent that had just started working there. She said that this was the first crime scene she ever worked. That's why she got the rigor mortis wrong. She was a rookie. No. Amy Kitchen was killed right around midnight, just like James was. Brutally shot to death. And whose thumbprint was on the magazine of the gun? Ivan Cantu. Fact. The post-conviction DNA testing came back with a 1 in 825,000 random match probability. 1 in 825,000. Now, that might not be the highest match in the world, but it's something. Something the defense tries to ignore. If Ivan wasn't wearing those jeans, then why would there be a 1 in 825,000 probability? No. Ivan was wearing them, and he forgot to take out the trash, because he was on cocaine, ecstasy, and meth. It's that simple. Mystery solved. Facts that the bullet in the wall at the Parridge apartment was fired by the murder weapon, and the murder weapon had Ivan Cantu's left thumbprint on the magazine. That proves a fictitious pizza man did not fire the bullet in the wall. That proves Ivan Cantu had his gun on November 2nd when he fired it at Amy Betcher. That proves Ivan Cantu had this gun on November 3rd when he went over to James Mosqueda 
and Amy Kitchen's house and killed them. And that proves Ivan Cantu had this gun at Tawny's apartment. Come on, how could Amy Betcher really plant a gun with Ivan's thumbprint already on the magazine? Amy didn't plant the gun. Nobody planted the Corvette. Nobody planted the jeans and socks. In 22 years, there has not been one piece of hard evidence that the defense can present that someone else committed these murders. And there is not one piece of hard evidence that the defense can present that proves someone else set up Ivan. All the evidence still points to Ivan. In 2001, the jury knew Ivan was guilty, and Ivan is still guilty today. So, ladies and gentlemen, I will ask that you will go back there and find him guilty. Thank you. This is from the charge of the court given to the jurors on October 16th of 2001. And now, you're the jury. If you believe from the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, Ivan Abner Cantu, on or about the fourth day of November 2000, did intentionally cause the death of an individual, James Mosqueda, by shooting James Mosqueda with a firearm, and the said defendant was in the course of committing or attempting to commit the offense of robbery of James Mosqueda, you will find the defendant guilty of the offense of capital murder, as alleged in the indictment, and so say by your verdict. If you believe from the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, Ivan Abner Cantu, on or about the fourth day of November 2000, did intentionally cause the death of the individuals, James Mosqueda and Amy Kitchen, by shooting them both with a firearm, and both murders were committed during the same criminal transaction, you will find the defendant guilty of the offense of capital murder, and so say by your verdict. If you do not so believe, or if you have a reasonable doubt thereof, you will acquit the defendant of the offense of capital murder and say by your verdict, not guilty. All persons are presumed to be innocent and no person may be convicted of an offense unless each element of the offense is proved beyond a reasonable doubt. The law does not require a defendant to prove his innocence or produce any evidence at all. The presumption of innocence alone is sufficient to acquit the defendant. Unless the jurors are satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt of the defendant's guilt after careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence in the case. In all criminal cases, the burden of proof is on the state throughout the trial and never shifts to the accused person. The prosecution has the burden of proving the defendant guilty, and it must do so by proving each and every element of the offense charged beyond a reasonable doubt. And if it fails to do so, you must acquit the defendant. It is not required that the prosecution prove guilt beyond all possible doubt. It is required that the prosecution's proof excludes all reasonable doubt concerning the defendant's guilt. You are the exclusive judges of the facts proved, of the credibility of the witnesses, and of the weight to be given to the testimony. Your sole duty at this time is to determine whether the defendant is guilty or not guilty.
And that's the end of our timeline. The next timeline belongs to the state of Texas. And as of this episode's release date, there are about three weeks until Ivan's scheduled execution. In the next few days, Ivan's attorney Gina Bunn will be filing with the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. That board could recommend clemency, and then Governor Abbott has the power to grant or deny their recommendation. So that's one possibility for relief. The other, Ivan's successive writ of habeas corpus. Gina Bunn will likely file that around the middle of the month. That writ is filed with the Criminal Court of Appeals, and they will determine if the writ meets the Section 5 requirement that basically says that the claims raised in the successive writ must rely on fact or law that were unavailable at the time of the initial writ filing. For Ivan, that was 2004. And there are new laws and new facts that have come about since 2004 that could impact Ivan's case. But what is unknown is if those laws and facts are enough for Ivan to get relief. I've been able to talk to Ivan over the phone weekly since he's been put on death watch. And I can tell you that Ivan's always been confident with his upcoming successive writ filing until March 9th. That's the day that Arthur Brown Jr. was executed. And these were his final words. What's occurring here tonight is not justice. It's murder of an innocent man for a murder that occurred in 1992. For the last 30 years, I've proven my innocence to the courts, but the courts blocked me and then refused me access to the ballistics for 20 years. I've proven facts and ballistics to be false. I asked for DNA. I was denied DNA, and the state doesn't want the truth to come out. The victim's son identified on audio tape it wasn't me or the co-defendant. The state hid the evidence so long and good that my own attorneys couldn't find it. Tonight, Texas will kill a second innocent man for a murder that occurred in 1992. I have no further words. Arthur Brown Jr. had a strong case, and they executed him ever since March 9th. There's been a different tone in Ivan's voice fear. These next few weeks will be intense, and we'll be following this until the end. Once Ivan's successive writ is filed, it will be public record, so we'll be able to review the claims for ourselves as Ivan's life hangs in the balance. Next time on Cousins by Blood. If you believe Ivan is more deserving of a new trial than death and want to know what you can do, if you haven't already signed the petition, go to the site bit.ly slash Ivancantu. The I and C have to be capitalized. If you live in Texas and want to attend rallies, email me at cousinsbybloodpodcast at gmail.com. And if you don't live near the Dallas or Houston area, put up signs of support in your town. We're at the all-hands-on-deck stage to raise awareness for Ivan's case. 
post on your social media. Make any noise you can. Amy's Testimony, read by Sarah Marguerite. The Judge, read by Steve Nupp. The Prosecution, read by Catherine Ganymi Leach. The Defense, read by David Whitlock. The Testimony of Detective Witsit, read by Joshua Lute. Mixing and Mastering, by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.